Let's turn in God's Word now to 1 John 2. 1 John 2. We'll read verses 1 through 17, and our text is verses 1 and 2. Let's worship God as we read His Word in 1 John 2. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which ye had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past, and the true light now shineth. He that saith he is in the light, and hateth his brother, is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because ye have known the Father. I have written unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because ye are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. May God bless the reading of His Word to our hearts tonight and in this week. Our text is verses 1 and 2 of 1 John 2. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. My little children is God's address to the Apostle John of the Church of Jesus Christ. And from that love of God, the truth of our text is given, was given to John's audience and is given to us this evening, our eyes are directed not to ourselves, but to God the Father, but more specifically to Jesus Christ. Our sermon is about the most important legal case that any of us will ever be or have ever been involved in. A legal case that has huge consequences for ourselves personally and affects us for all time 
and eternity to come. All of us are involved in this case and have an interest in it. And this case has nothing to do with any earthly court or any litigation that we may have been involved in in the past or will be involved in in the future. But it has to do with our standing before God. It isn't about who owns this or that property, but it is about who owns us. And that is why the words, my little children, are so important because that is how God and how His inspired apostle begins. That is how God sees and views us. We need to hear the gospel of God to us this afternoon. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. That's our theme taken from verse 1. And our points are, first of all, our need for an advocate. Secondly, our advocate himself. And third, the argument that he makes as our advocate. If any man sin, we have an advocate. Our need, our advocate, and his argument. John begins by explaining why he wrote to the church. In verse 1, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And this is really a summary of the whole of Christianity. Christianity is not essentially about giving us joy and peace. It's not about giving us um, contentment or helping us in our different relationships in this world, but Christianity, the Christian gospel, is about stopping sin. The Bible was written. Jesus came into the world being sent by the Father. The gospel is preached now in the New Testament and Jesus is returning for the end of sin against God. For that we pray, when we pray as Jesus taught us, deliver us from all evil. What is sin? Sin is the transgression of the law. The Apostle John will go on in chapter 3, verse 4, to make that statement. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Sin has nothing to do with majority opinions or what's on the books in our state or in our country. Sin has nothing to do with our own feelings or preferences. Sin is, the, is rebellion against the law of God, as He has set it forth in His Word and revealed His will in the Scriptures And John says, These things write I unto you that ye sin not, that you do not transgress the law of God. Now this purpose John gives for writing needs to be seen also in light of chapter 1 verse 4, where John says to his audience, These things write write we unto you that your joy may be full. And to the world, those two purposes are at odds with each other. That our joy may be full and that we do not sin because the world finds joy in sin and in transgression and rebellion against the law of God. But the wisdom of God is much higher than the wisdom of men. And the Word of God says that fullness of joy comes through the ceasing of sin. Joy and the end of sin are twinned inseparably. And this is His great purpose, that our joy may be full, that we sin not. But John realizes because he is a realistic pastor and because the Holy Ghost who inspired him to write these words knows his people well, that in this world 
the great aim that we do not sin will not be accomplished. And we understand that too as we learned this morning looking at how Jesus taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That very petition is necessary because in this life we are not yet in the state where temptation is a thing of the past and final deliverance over sin is a reality for us. So the Apostle goes on, if anyone sin, if any man sin, which means if anyone sin. And we all understand that if is not an if of possibility, it's an if of temporality in the sense that it could be translated when, when any man sin. Because as sinners in a fallen world, we will and we do sin. And when we sin, we need to know we have an advocate with the Father. We have one who stands before the Father on our behalf. Now this too is contrary to the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of our own sinful nature that says, if any man sin, if I sin, I need a good excuse. I need to try harder. I need to balance it out with a good deed. I need to go to church more. I need to read more. I need to find somebody else to blame. Or, I simply should give up hope. But the Spirit says to us as the church of Jesus Christ, if any man, if any one of you sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We need to understand and emphasize that any, if any man sin, any kind of person, nobody is excluded from seeking the services of this advocate. Paul says in Romans 10 verse 13, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You may look at yourself and think, I'm a unique case. My sin is different from everybody else's. My sin is so black and so awful, so detestable to God, so repeated, so dark against the backdrop of the light of God who is light and in whom is no darkness at all that this text doesn't apply to me. You may be a Christian. You may be a believer. And see awful sins in your life or in your heart. This word is for you. You may be a Christian who's backslidden. Outwardly, your life appears to be fine. Everything appears to be going well. You appear to be spiritually strong and, and carrying on as usual. But in your heart, you know you're far away from God. And as you look at your cold heart, this is your answer. If this is me, if any man sin, we have an advocate. Maybe you're a Christian who has fallen into awful, outward, gross, and public sin recently or long in the past. A sin you thought you'd never contemplate, much less actually do. And the memory of that sin, although it's forgiven, is haunting. This is your response when that haunting sin raises its head in your life. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. This is also a word that we bring, that we set before those who do not profess faith in Christ. We call them to believe in this heavenly advocate. No matter how foolish they've been or how immoral they have been, this is God's word. If any man sin, if any man 
or woman has transgressed the law of God, it isn't time for the 12 steps. It isn't time for resolutions or for turning a new page or turning over a new leaf. It is time to come to our advocate with the Father. So can any of us this afternoon, can I, can any of you reasonably exclude yourselves from this advocate, from access to him? The scripture does not say if any man is reasonably good, if any man or woman is almost perfect, if any man or woman is trying their best, they can have an advocate, but if any man sin. This is, as it were, the way to the advocate begins by confessing, as we did this morning, our own weakness, our own emptiness, our own sinfulness and hopelessness. To say, I have sinned and I need an advocate. Now to continue the courtroom language and illustration of our text, we must also understand that we need an advocate because of the accusers, because of the prosecuting attorneys, as it were, who are arrayed against us. This morning we spoke of our threefold enemy, the devil, the world, and our own flesh. And now we're going to speak of a threefold prosecution, as it were, Again, beginning with the devil, because the devil is the accuser of the brethren, as Revelation 12, verse 10 says, and therefore of any one of us. One of Satan's great delights is to tempt us to sin, to show us why we should sin, why sin will be enjoyable and fun, to masquerade as an angel of light, And then when we follow his lure into sin, when we fall into his trap, he comes along and accuses us in our sin and robs us of hope, tries to rob us of hope in God's mercy. Or when we strive to do well, when we strive to live according to God's law, when we strive to be holy as God is holy, Satan comes to us and says what we already know. You did it wrongly. You did it for the wrong motives. You did it for the wrong reasons and for bad purposes. So we cannot win with Satan whether we do wrong or whether we do right. Our second accuser is our own conscience. Bible talks in 1 John 3, verse 20, which, or 21, which will be the text for our sermon next Sunday afternoon, God willing. 1 John 3, verse 21 speaks of that. Beloved, if our heart condemn us, God is greater. Our heart or our conscience condemns us, accuses us of evil. Our consciences are not perfect. We have a sense of wrong and right and of morality, but so often we get it wrong. Our conscience is imperfect, and it can unjustly and unfairly prosecute us for evil. And especially for God's people who have sensitive consciences, They can find their consciences pointing the finger at them even when there's no reason for it. That they can discern after examining themselves before God and asking others to to help them. Our conscience accuses us. And finally, and most awfully, The law of God stands over against us as a prosecutor. God's great law, as we hear it read from Sunday to Sunday, as 
we read it ourselves, as we hear it preached, as we see the judgments of God on the earth, on those who transgress His law with impenitence, the law comes at us like ten prosecutors all at once, pointing the finger and saying, you're guilty. To have the wicked devil and our imperfect conscience coming at us is bad enough, but to have the holy and just and good and sharp-edged law of God pointing out all our innumerable imperfections really leaves us crying out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, a hopeless and helpless sinner. Look at all these wounds of convictions, like so many wounds in my soul from the points of the law striking our heart. The law is a prosecutor. And so the devil and the conscience and the law together are so many sources of 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 accusation against us, pointing out our sins, pointing out where we have transgressed the law of God, where we have stepped over the line. What's our answer? How do we deal with those prosecutors? With the words of our text, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. If anyone here knows the accusations of Satan, feels the prickings of conscience, feels condemned under the law of God, this is the great good news. We have an advocate. We cannot defend ourselves but we have an advocate. Yes, we have sin here. Yes, we live in a world of sin surrounded by many temptations and by many opportunities for rebellion. But we have an advocate there with the Father. And now let's consider more closely who this advocate is as to His person and to His work. Let's begin by recognizing this is what we need most. Because our Father, with whom our Advocate is, is holy. He is, says 1 John 1 verse 5, God who is light and in whom is no darkness at all. He's not an indulgent Father. He isn't the kind of Father who sees sin in His children and can pass it by or overlook it or wink at it, or excuse himself from dealing with it because of busyness or, or, or inconvenience or laziness. He is a holy and a righteous God. He cannot see sin in His children without dealing with it. He must take action against it, compelled to as a jealous God. But here's where our Advocate comes in. He is with the Father in the court of heaven. Our Advocate knows the judge. He doesn't enter the courtroom of heaven as a stranger, but as the Son of the judge, who is one in substance, one in essence with the judge, who knows how the judge's mind works, who knows his holy character, and who goes in with the confidence of knowledge. And our Father knows the judge, knows the advocate, and has a favorable disposition towards Him. He loves the advocate because it is His only begotten Son. He isn't out to try to trip up the advocate, but to see Him honored and winning cases because the honor that comes to our advocate is honor that comes to the judge. And who is this advocate? 
Our text identifies him as Jesus Christ the righteous, or Jesus Christ righteous. The is not really in the original. Jesus Christ righteous. Our advocate is Jesus. Jehovah's salvation. That's what the angel Gabriel told Mary his mother and Joseph his legal father to name the wonder child who would be born by the power of the Holy Spirit from Mary's virgin womb. He shall, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. This name identifies our advocate as though we would identify a lawyer by the name Mr. Successful or Lawyer Wins Them All. This is a name to inspire confidence in our advocate. He is Jesus. And furthermore, He's Christ. He's the anointed and appointed advocate. He was called and authorized and qualified for the office of advocate that He was appointed to. He was authorized, called and appointed by the judge Himself to be our advocate with the Father. To appear in the highest court of heaven itself before the highest judge, God Almighty, And He was anointed by the Holy Spirit without measure to have and to work in His place as His people's advocate. And third, He's identified as righteous or just or upright. He is righteous in Himself. He's righteous essentially, as we sometimes say. How many earthly lawyers can, uh, of how many earthly lawyers can that be said? How many are worthy of that title? This name emphasizes the advocate's own essential perfection and uprightness as the righteous Lord of the same substance as God, the righteous judge. But also it speaks to his conduct in conducting our case. He isn't a sleazy lawyer. His goal isn't to win at all costs or to clear his clients. His his focus is not his clients. Not only his clients, but he's interested in the law. He desires to see the law fulfilled and the law honored and exalted in every jot and tittle. He doesn't search for loopholes. He doesn't try to get his clients off on a technicality. He doesn't try to deceive or use dishonest methods. This is our advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. And the question now for us is, have we committed our case to Him? I don't ask that to inspire doubt in anyone, but to reflect upon that question. Have we committed our case to Him? And what does that mean? I trust all of us would say that we have committed our case to Him. But what does that mean? Well, it means, first of all, that we need Him. Because all of us can find ourselves in the phrase, if anyone sin. We're all sinners. But do we find ourselves also in that phrase, we have an advocate? Or does our assertion stop at the word sin? And do we try to put some other words in there? If anyone sins, if I sin, I've got the best excuse. I'll try harder next time. I'll try to balance out my sin with something good. I'll, I was under extreme pressure when I did X, Y, or Z. Or I, I, maybe I wasn't even a believer when I committed that sin. Or at least I'm in church. Or at least I'm in a Reformed church. And I won't do it again. 
Those are not safe conclusions. This is the only safe conclusion. If I sin, I have an advocate with the Father. It's not time for excuses. It's not time to find someone to blame or to try to justify ourselves, but it is time to come to Jesus. And we have powerful incentive for doing that. And there are mighty implications that come from understanding that Jesus has charge of our case. Four reasons to commit our case to Him or four implications of Him being our advocate that we can speak of tonight. The first reason is He's never lost a case. His case success rate is 100%. Much was made this past week of the fact that uh, the, the coach of the Duke basketball team had his 100th win. Coach K had, has 100 wins over his nearly quarter of a century of, of coaching Duke basketball. But those 100 wins do not speak of a 100% success rate. Jesus has a 100% success rate as the advocate of his people. No one has ever come to him saying, will you take my case? And he has taken it and failed. We look through his record and we find lists of names and beside all of them the words, case one. If you retain counsel as in an earthly sense, you go to them and you ask to see their case file and they bring out a thin, a thin file Maybe they've been a lawyer for 25 years or for 30 years and their file, their success rate, can fit in one single manila folder. That's not something that's going to inspire confidence in that, in that lawyer. But Jesus' case file, as we read it in the pages of Holy Scripture, is a thick file. And how many hopeless cases has He taken up and won? Let's consider some of them. Adam, our first father, created upright with a perfect will in true holiness and in righteous love for God, who fell into sin, bringing horrible consequences on himself and his family and the whole human race. Case one. Or Noah, delivered by the waters of the flood from an unrighteous world, only to become a farmer and become drunk and lay naked in his tent. Case one. Or Father Abraham, called out of Ur to go to the land that God would show him, who then went down into Egypt in a time of famine, in weakness of faith, who lied about his wife out of fear of men, and who later committed adultery with his maidservant to produce a son. Case one. How about Jacob, who always desired God's blessing, who always strove for the blessing of God, but who who devised all kinds of schemes and underhanded methods and deceptions. Case one. Think of all the judges. Barak with his weak faith. Gideon with all of his imperfections. Samson with his, in his, his, his fornication and his self, self-willed approach to his work at times. Case one for all of them. David the man after God's own heart. Committing adultery and murder, and numbering the people in his pride. Case one. Or how about the New Testament? Peter denying his Lord after boasting that if, any, if all forsook him, Peter would go to death for Jesus. Case one. Mary Magdalene with her seven devils. Case one. All the other prostitutes and publicans 
who brought their cases to Jesus. All of their cases won. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 Jews, some of whom had called for and been witnesses to the crucifixion of Jesus, pricked in their hearts through the preaching of the Apostle Peter, repenting of their sins and bringing their cases to Jesus as the risen Christ of God. All their cases won. And there are many more in the pages of Scripture. What reason do we have to think that our case is a case that is too hard for Jesus? That's pride, for one thing, to think that ours is a unique case and Christ's grace, Christ, Christ's advocacy somehow will fall short of being effective in our particular case. We have an advocate with a hundred percent success rate. Number two, our advocate knows our case. When we go to an earthly lawyer, much of his, the, 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 his ability to, to, to defend our case successfully depends on how well we make him aware of our case. We need to tell him anything all the way through. And when we've done all that we can, there may be one detail that we have missed on which the whole outcome of our case depends. But our advocate with the Father knows our case in all of its detail. When we go to Him and we begin to tell Him about ourselves, I've, I've been here. He says, I'm aware. I've done this and that and the other thing. He says, I know about it all. And I know some things you didn't tell me. And when we say that he probably will be ashamed of us and won't want our case, he says, I do. No point in going to Jesus with half of our sins. He knows them all. Say, I have sinned. And I need an advocate. Number three, our advocate with the Father knows the law. This is a great encouragement because we may go to Him and think that there are a thousand sins that we've done. He knows of tens of thousands more. He knows the law better than we do. He knows not only the outward transgressions, but all the inward intricacies and details of the law and applications of the law in our life. He will argue our case in every point. And number four, our advocate with the Father has great knowledge. He has great ability as Jesus Christ the righteous. But he also has great compassion and sympathy. If you need to go to an earthly lawyer, you may meet with indifference. You may meet with coldness. You may, you may find yourself working with someone who is motivated only by profit. How much money they can make off of you. How long they can extend your case in order to bring, bring maximum enrichment to themselves. Or they may take your case but treat you with disdain and say, how could you, how could you violate the law in such an obvious and 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 consequential way. Jesus never responds in that way. Jesus is our advocate with the Father who came from the Father. But who made himself in the likeness of sinful flesh who was tempted in all points like as we are, who suffered and endured all that the devil and hell could throw at him, yet without sin. And who is ready to receive when we come. 
Jesus himself says in John 6, verse 37, All that the Father hath given me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. This is our advocate. One who is successful in all cases. Who knows our case. Who knows how we have transgressed God's law. Who knows our weakness and receives us with sympathy. Now what's his argument? We have a need, we have an advocate. What's his argument? We find that in verse 2 of our text. He is, Jesus Christ the righteous, is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now that word propitiation is not one that we may be familiar with, or we may certainly have heard it read in the Scripture before and encountered it. But we need to be reminded that propitiation, this word really has connotations going back all the way to the Old Testament. When God instructed that in the most holy place, in the tabernacle, in the temple, there be the Ark of the Covenant, the golden box, the the wooden box covered with gold, and the covering of that box was called the mercy seat or the propitiatory seat. And there God sat as the judge of His Israel in the cloud of His presence. And once per year, according to God's will, the high priest would enter the tabernacle, enter the temple, go into the most holy place with blood. And He would sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat, on the propitiatory seat, on the Day of Atonement. And that blood reminded the priest and it reminded the people that the blood of bulls and goats could never be a propitiation for sin. But that the blood of the Lamb of God only would take away the sins of the world. And John will write later in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And that idea of propitiation, first of all, refers to expiation or the removal of guilt, the purging of liability to punishment through the covering of sins. Removing guilt from God's people expunging guilt from our record and imputing that guilt to Jesus Christ and His righteousness to us. And then that idea of propitiation also means the removal of wrath through the covering of our sins by the blood of the Lamb of God, through the expunging of our guilt, God's justice was satisfied. And God's wrath against us that required eternal punishment of body and soul in hell was turned away. Was taken by our propitiation, Jesus Christ, upon Himself as He bore our sins on the cross and bore it away through His perfect sacrifice. Jesus' work removes our guilt and satisfies God's justice, turning away His anger. This means that when Jesus, as Jesus stands now, this moment in the heavenly courtroom before our Father. He isn't pleading for you and for me 
they'll never do it again. He isn't pleading they won't do it next time or they generally have a good character or their goods and evil deeds balance. He's not even pleading theology, but he is pleading himself. He presents exhibits A and B and C, and they are all himself. No other arguments, no other witnesses, no other exhibits introduced or evidence given. He is the propitiation for our sins. He was appointed by the Father to be our propitiation, sent into the world to make the propitiatory sacrifice on the cross. His work is not about excusing sin, but atoning for it. Not about covering sin up, but covering it all. Not about excusing sin, but expiating it. Not about sweeping sin under the rug where no human eyes might see it, but the eyes of the judge still do. But about sweeping sin away into the sea of God's forgetfulness. And now... He comes and says, on your behalf and mine in the presence of God, Father, forgive my little children because of my propitiating work. More wonderful than our own personal salvation is What John goes on to emphasize in the end of verse 2. He is not the propitiation only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is designed to emphasize the sufficiency of the propitiation of Jesus. We understand, of course, that this does not mean every person in the entire world. We've learned that from our earliest days in catechism and and. In, in church when this text has been preached on before. And now in the context of this sermon, we, we can emphasize again, Jesus has never taken a case or represented or atoned or made propitiation for anyone and failed. The very idea is dishonoring to the advocate and blasphemous to the name of the judge who gives this advocate to us but that He is the Advocate as the One who propitiated not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. The sufficiency of His propitiation is emphasized. He is the only propitiation for anyone who will be saved. His is an atonement and work and propitiation for all kinds of people in all kinds of places, in every age, in all circumstances, of any background, and any class. His atonement is not unlimited in its subjects, but it is unlimited in its success for those for whom it was made. And this is meant, beloved, as the Apostle John says to Assure us, these things write I unto you, that your joy may be full, that ye sin not. With this propitiation of Jesus as our salvation and the consciousness of His advocating work on our behalf already even now in heaven, what is more delightful then Him. Will sin satisfy us now? Will the joys of transgressing God's law be that to which we turn as we, as we return to our homes and to our callings tomorrow and in this week? When we put our trust in Jesus, He begins to work in us so that We love Him 
We desire, as John goes on to say, to keep his commandments. But because we're sinners and we fail, we need to come back to him. And he gives us every encouragement to do that. The thought that he's even now in heaven before the face of the righteous judge, our Father, Advocating for us as we've sat in church today and our thoughts have wandered. Our hearts have desired sinful things or been caught up in the mundane activities of life that we've, that we've done the week past or plan to do the week future. His work is not to say they'll do better next week. But He advocates for our forgiveness on the basis of His sacrificial work because of me he says because I lived the perfect life because I never went where I shouldn't have because I never let my mind deviate once from following after God and then I went to the altar of the cross and laid my life down in perfect love for God and perfect love for all whom the Father hath given to me and as you and I sit here in the quiet of our own souls is it our greatest joy to be able to say, as a sinner, I have an advocate with the Father. If I sin, I have Jesus Christ the righteous pleading my case in the heavenly courtroom. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate. Amen. Let us pray. Father, which art in heaven, we thank Thee for Thy gospel. Work out Thy purposes in our lives that our joy may be full and that we sin not. But when we do, may we Come to our heavenly advocate. And through him come to thee in confession and repentance. And receive and know the assurance that says he is the propitiation for our sins. Until that day which we ardently look forward to and expect when this, this word will no longer be necessary because sin will not be possible and we will see our advocate face to face and through him bask in the heavenly light of thee, our Father. In Jesus' name, amen.